Welcome to the Daily Office Lectionary. I'm Father Reed. This week, we're going to look at the scriptures for Second Epiphany. Second Epiphany. Now, we started the new year with First Epiphany, and we shared that last time with you. And you'll see the scriptures on this post are just an extension of those scriptures that we started from Genesis, from Hebrews, and from the Gospel of John. So we'll continue with those scriptures for the next couple of weeks. And let's begin with Second Epiphany. Again, I hope that you have a beautiful new year of study and reflection and reading and learning so that all of us who participate in this program can learn from the scriptures by reading them, meditating upon them. Some of it we will not be able to understand. It might be too difficult. That's where commentaries are helpful. Or if you have a study Bible at the bottom of the, of the page, you might be reading that. That might give you some insights into what you were reading. Now, the scriptures for this week are a little bit more difficult than they were last week as we move into Genesis, Hebrews, and John. But very, very powerful. Enjoy your reading. Now, we last left off with Noah, and Noah was commissioned by God to build an ark. Why? Because God was going to flood the earth and destroy everyone. Why? Because man had become profoundly corrupted. So he was going to make a covenant with Noah, which he did, and keep that covenant and would spare him and his family and then repopulate, start over, which is exactly what happened. So in chapter 7, you'll see that for Sunday, we have the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. So being righteous and living a righteous life and being a righteous person, very helpful. Take with you seven of every clean animal, male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean, a male and its mate. And then he just tells him, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him in verse 5, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came to the earth. So they entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And we see in chapter 7, the Lord shut them in at the end of verse 16. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. And the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. And then it rose greatly, and the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Every living thing perished. Everything on dry land had the breath of life, and its nostrils died. Every living thing on the earth was wiped out. Man and animals and creatures that moved along the ground and the birds of the air that were wiped out. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. That's just I've heard this story my whole life. That's just amazing. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Imagine it raining hard for 150 days. And so chapter 8, as we go through the week, chapter 8 is about the Lord opened, the, the uh, for 40 days Noah opened the window he had made in the ark. He sent out a raven. And so he's now trying to figure out as the waters go down, when is it going to complete, be completely dry and where is he going to land? And so Noah came out finally, verse 18, together with his sons and his wife and his neighbor's wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord in verse 20 of chapter 8. 
and took some of the clean animals and clean birds he'd sacrificed, burnt offerings. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So in chapter 9, he makes a covenant with Noah. Be fruitful and increase in number and on the earth. Whoever sheds the blood of man, in verse 6, by man shall blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. Remember, we talked about that last time in Genesis um, chapter 1, where God creates uh, man in verse uh, 26 and 27 in his image and likeness. He says, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth, and increase upon it, verse 7 of chapter 9. So he says in 12, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you. I've set a rainbow in the clouds. Oh, you know what a rainbow is, right? I've set a rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. A rainbow in the clouds. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So very, very significant. The flood, the destruction, and then restoration, and the covenant that now God has made with Noah. Okay? Chapter 11. Chapter 11. The Tower of Babel. Well, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And they said, let us come and build ourselves a city, verse 4, chapter 11, with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the old earth. Well, God did not like that. Because now they were drawing away from God one more time, just as we saw uh, with the people during Noah's time. And the Lord came down and they all spoke the same language and he confused the languages and he separated them out. He scattered them over the face of the earth. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. We see at the end, Terah becomes the father of Abram. This is verse 27. The father of Abram. Remember, Abram's going to come into play in chapter 12. We're going to see that in just a minute. Nahor and Haran. Sarah was barren. She had no children. And in chapter 12, we have the call of Abram. This is how God is going to save the world. He's going to bring together the Jewish people in that area we call Israel now. And from that group of people, the Messiah is to be born, Christ the Lord. Okay? And so we begin with the call of Abram, which who later, later is called Abraham, but his name originally is Abram. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and I, whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So the blessing of Abram is a great way for nations and peoples to be blessed, okay, by blessing the Israeli people. So we see in, um, that's um, Genesis eleven twenty-seven 27 to 12, 8, and now we're finally looking at 12, 9 through 13, 1. Abram goes to Egypt and lives there for a while because the famine is severe in chapter 12, verse 10. Then he meets his wife Sarah as he was entering Egypt. 
etc., etc. Okay, and so now we have this beginning of Abram making a name for himself. He's going to be working with Lot. He's going to be working with Sarah. And so, as we will see in coming weeks, we will see how that is all going to play out. Okay, so we've got Noah. We've got the flood. We've got the eternal covenant and the rainbow. We've got the Tower of Babel, where he separated them out because they were building a city unto themselves and unified in one language against God, quite frankly. Then God calls Abram to follow him, and from him is going to come a great nation. Let's go back to Hebrews. Back to Hebrews. We were in chapter 4 of Hebrews. We were through the 13th verse. You could see that on Sunday we're 4, 1 to 16. Fabulous verse, fabulous verse. For we do not have a high priest, verse 15 of chapter 4, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, but without sin. Hebrews, in a couple of places in Hebrews, make very clear that Jesus did not sin. Very important point. Let us then approach the throne of grace because the person is on our side with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So you want to go to the throne of grace. You want, to, you want mercy and you want grace. You do not want justice. You do not want retribution. You want to go with your head down and you're confessing your sins and asking God for mercy and grace. But go to the throne of grace, folks. Approach it boldly. Approach it with confidence. And what, what you need, approach it before the Lord. It's very, very important. Do not be shy. Do not be scared. Beg for mercy. Beg for the grace of God. Offer forgiveness. Go in humility. Chapter um, 4, 4, 14 to 5, 6. Now, we're just going to be playing through this. Now, again, as I said last week, these scriptures are fairly difficult. You want to do some commentary work on them if you want to know more about what they mean. They're, they're, they're complex, and they're filled with lots of Old Testament allusions and background data uh, in the Old Testament would be very critical to understanding this because, as I said last time, the writer is writing to people who have become Christian from the Jewish faith and are now following Christ, and he's showing how much Christ is greater than Judaism, Jewish views and beliefs, okay? And that we do not, and he warns them, do not drift away from the faith. Follow Christ. And we'll see this in chapter 6 in just a minute. So we're looking through chapter 5. It says in verse 9, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him and was designated in verse 10 to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So he is the source of eternal salvation, but he's, Remember I said last time, we need to obey him. We need to put our faith and trust in him. We need to do what he says, which is what obedience is. Solid food in verse 14 of chapter 5 is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good for evil. That person is consistent in training themselves to distinguish good for evil. Sometimes it's not easy to do, but we need to have solid food, folks. We don't need to be eating poorly. We need to eat well, using a human analogy in terms of eating and nutrition and growth. Spiritual growth is about eating well spiritually. 
So we ask ourselves, what does your relationship with Christ look like? How are you doing in your relationship with Christ? Are you growing in Christ? Can you distinguish good from evil? Chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, spiritual maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So we need to move on. We need to grow in Christ. Your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth are very important in your Christian faith and walk. Okay, then he warns us. It's impossible, verse 4, chapter 6, for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So our walk with God is very important to God. It's a very important aspect of your life. It should be the most important thing, your growth in Christ. You do not want to fall away from Christ. You want to continue to grow in Christ. And so chapter 6 really... um, really challenges us to think in that way, okay? Now, when God made his promise to Abraham, verse 13, remember I told us, told you that we were going to see how God is going to use Abram, and he's going to become Abraham, he's going to marry Sarah, and God's going to use him uh, to begin building back our relationship with God by presenting the Jewish people and the land, and then eventually the Messiah, since there's no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants, which is what God did. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So the promise was to Abraham, and Abraham received it. That's the attitude that we want to have. Here are the promises of God. You want to receive the promises of God. You want to be patient in receiving them. You want to receive them. Okay? So... Understand and know what those promises are as we go through these lessons together and seek to have them and attain them and to hold on to them and to live in them. Chapter 7, Melchizedek the priest. Now, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. There's the tithe idea. First, his name means kings of righteousness, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. peace. Without father or mother or genealogy, without beginnings of days or end of life, likely the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. So the idea of who Melchizedek is is a fascinating subject in Christianity. Who was Melchizedek in the Old Testament? We know that Melchizedek that Christ is like Melchizedek, the Son of God remains a priest forever. The Son of God is a high priest. The Son of God is perfect. The Son of God is without sin. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Okay? So there we have the importance of Melchizedek and importance of the high priest. And we see in chapter 7, second epiphany, Jesus is like of uh, Melchizedek, and he begins to explain this, for it is declared, you see that in verse 17, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, okay? Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. See, remember we said last time that 
the writers trying to show that Jesus is better. We see this incredible figure named Melchizedek. Jesus is as good or better than him, okay? Jesus is a better high priest. He's got a better covenant. Now, there were many of those priests, verse 23, since death prevented some from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever. He doesn't die. He has a permanent priesthood. People died in the Old Testament, of course. Jesus is permanent because he's eternal. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. God, Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of God Almighty. He is eternal. He is an eternal being. He has no beginning. He has no end. He was not created. So why would we want to go back to something that is not as great as he was, or is, I should say, was in the sense of looking back 2,000 years at this scripture, but he's still alive. The others are dead. Okay. He was sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered himself in verse 27. For the law appoints as high priest men who were weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So the son is way better in terms of what he does as a priest uh, in comparison to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is high and lifted up. Jesus is much greater. So the writer brilliantly is showing how Christ is the place that we need to land and stay there on a permanent basis. Again, rejoice, read slowly, listen to the Holy Spirit, guide you as you're reading these fantastic scriptures from Genesis and Hebrews. Well, let's go to the Gospel of John, which is a very impressive book. And we see um, the end of chapter 2, and we see the great third and fourth chapter. Okay? So we have... Um, Jesus arguing them about the temple. Remember I talked about the temple and Jesus was upset and about them, the way they were treating the temple. He's very sensitive to that because his father. And um, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Chapter uh, 2, verse 23. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. He knew that we are unrighteous, that we are ungodly, and that we, were, we are not holy. We can say different things, but not ultimate trust. Jesus ultimately trusted only one person, and that was his heavenly Father. You and I, likewise, our ultimate trust is in Christ. Our ultimate trust should not be in ourselves and in someone else. No human can live up to that, okay? Certainly not ourselves, but Christ can. And so Hebrews, they want you to stay with that. Genesis is building a case for God who is going to do this great work in rebuilding um, our relationship with God, which we lost in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. Well, the, the third chapter is extremely, extremely famous, and I'm, I'm assuming all of you know it well. Nicodemus comes and is a rabbi, a very powerful person, and Jesus famously says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thinks he's talking about a person going back into the womb. Jesus said, um, and, unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You should not be as surprised at my saying you must be born again. What he's saying is, is that you and I cannot save ourselves. We are not born in Christ. We are born in Adam. 
And in Adam, we will perish, but in Christ, we will be raised. So we have to be born again. The Holy Spirit has to move in us supernaturally so that we, we want to follow Christ. We want to repent of our sins. We want to follow Christ. We want to do his will. Something supernatural has to happen. Now, naturally, we're going to follow ourselves. So in order to save someone, it has to be from above. It has to be supernatural. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Okay? The famous 16th verse, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17, chapter 3, but to save the world through him. He says, in verse 18, Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. So everybody that does not believe in Jesus is condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. See, because we're born in the state of condemnation. We're born without Christ, and it's our natural inclination not to follow Christ, but to disobey him and follow ourselves. We have to be born from above. So the supernatural grace of God has to be outside of ourselves, which is what supernatural is about. Supra, above nature was condemned already because he had not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Verse 19. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. No question about it. We saw it in Genesis, and we see the Jewish Christians attempting to fall back in Hebrews. People love darkness. They love darkness because their deeds are evil. We are naturally evil and we are against the Lord. Something supernatural needs to happen. I pray that happens to all of us. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So you want to move into the light. You want to move away from darkness. You want to move toward life. You want to move against death. You want to move toward Christ instead of move toward Satan. John the Baptist shares some thoughts with us. He says, I must become, uh, he must become greater. I must become less. I made reference to that last week. The father loves the son in verse 35 and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. I don't think you can get any simpler than that. Whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. So if you reject the son, according to John 3, 36, the wrath of God will be on you and you will perish eternally. If you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. If you do not believe in the Son, you do not. I don't know how it could be more clear than that. Chapter 4, Jesus goes and talks to the Samaritan woman. Now, the Samaritan people were not well thought of by the Jews at all. He's talking to a woman and he's talking to a woman from Samaria. Now, you can't get any lower on the totem pole than that. She's the lowest of the low, but Jesus goes and talks to her. And he has a couple of sayings that I want you to remember as you're working through verses 1 through 42. The first one is verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, what we need, folks, is living water that Jesus gives us. Number two, verse 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks this water, this living water, will be, uh, this water that he is giving the woman, I'm sorry, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him, the living water, will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
So the water that you and I drink every day to sustain ourselves, which is a good thing, you're still going to perish. But if you take the water that Jesus has, that is eternal. And that will get you all the way to eternal life. So whatever you want what Jesus has for you. We're later going to see in chapter 6 that he's going to talk about himself in terms of the bread of life. The third verse, verse 24, God is spirit and his his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Number uh, four, my food, verse 34, Jesus is saying, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I am here. What sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Jesus is going to call all of us who follow him to the same kind of standard, that our food needs to be to do the will of him who sent you, the one that created you, the one that loves you, the one that laid down his life for you, the one that died on the cross for you, and to finish the work that God has given you to do. That is why you are here. That is why I am here, to do the work that God has given you to do. And so the will of God, according to Jesus, is the most important thing that we need to be focusing on, which, again, goes back to being born again, supernatural, outside of ourselves, impossible with man, possible with God, and that we supernaturally follow him, not of our own selves. We don't have the ability to do that ourselves. But God Almighty does that for us. There's a lot in this week, from Genesis and the flood all the way back to the Samaritan woman in John 4. God bless you and enjoy. I'll see you next week for our third epiphany. Mm-hmm.